welcome to Decolonizing Sexuality, where we have intellectual conversations that change the way we think about sexuality and question if that may have an impact on how we think about everything else. Hi, everyone. It seems like it's been so long. Um, I have been really, really occupied this month because I am moving. So apologies for um, this being, what, just two days late? (laughs) So it's not terrible. Um, I'm really, really happy to move and to expand my outer space a little bit. Um, I work so much on expanding my inner space And so I believe that I deserve this and I'm really grateful to uh, have the opportunity to expand my space on um, the outer plane. So I'm honestly surprised that I got this month's episode finished with all that I've been occupied with lately. Yeah, you know, a constant theme in almost every aspect of my life recently has kind of been externalizing my boundaries and values at the macro level by making sure that my internal radar is searching for somatic blips in the system at a more granular level. So it's kind of like fixing what's going on at the macro level by looking very deeply at the micro level, but without reductionizing. It's really about balancing both micro and macro at the same time. So one way to do that and what I've been paying attention to um, and what I'll put down in the um, what I'll put down in the description below is something really fascinating that I had not heard of before. But um, basically, scientists have been saying that there are seven senses. And yeah, this is not like the movie The Sixth Sense. This is actually uh They're saying that objectively, that there are seven senses. And uh, there's one that's proprioception, which is kind of being able to sense where you are in a space without having to look. And the one that I have been looking at very deeply is interoception, which is being able to figure out what's going on in the inside of you? What feelings are you feeling? So some of the ones that we might take for granted is like feeling hungry. You know, most of us know when we're feeling hungry or when we're feeling thirsty, which could lead us to think like I could be dehydrated if I'm thirsty. So interoception is extremely important because think about that when it comes to feeling burned out or feeling like burnout territory is being approached before it happens. So I think a lot of times we kind of say, um, we kind of use the word intuition to um, kind of like our body wisdom to kind of talk about this. And essentially that is what, that is what this whole podcast is about, is interoception. So what I've been doing with that is I've been focused on taking any perceived pathogens out of my environment, pathogens or antigens out of my environment, so I could see how life really is without that. I think we get so focused on trying to, I mean, which kind of doesn't make sense when we look at that at the micro level, right? Which is why I'm looking at that. Why would you? Like if you feel an inflammatory response, a doctor is going to remove, um, whatever, the the doctor is basically going to tell you to move yourself out of the environment that produces the antigens. So why in the world do we think, and we kind of gaslight and pathologize ourselves into thinking that 
we are somehow not resilient enough, and that's why I call this toxic resilience, that why are we, why do we see ourselves as not resilient enough for not, you know, for having to remove ourselves from the environment that produces narcissism or the environment that produces um, the inflammatory response. It's like what we do instead is we focus on that inflammatory response and we pathologize it and we go, oh my gosh, yeah, we have a disease and it's all our fault. It's like, no, the reality is the antigens are the antigens. How do we figure out how to uh, make sure that that doesn't come back. It's not your fault necessarily. It can be a problem with the environment, right? So for example, I just launched my mailing list, which I'll essentially be using in place of social media, which created the inflammatory responses, right? So if you want to follow me and stay updated with all my content, even written content, all the content, even outside of decolonizing sexuality, which I do a lot of personal development stuff in general, completely outside of the topic of sexuality, you can do so through the first page on my website. So I would be really, really happy for you to have the opportunity to check out all that content. I had a couple of friends mention Oh, wow. I wish that more people would say, sign up for my newsletter instead of follow me on social media. And they were like, life would be so much less toxic without social media all the time. And I was like, uh, yeah, <laughs> you know, and I thought to myself, I'm like, well, all you have to do is figure out what you truly value and what you don't, and then let go of what you don't value. Right. But obviously, it's not that simple. And I think that a lot of people think that the system, that the way, like the system, the way it is, is just so fixed that they'll be left alone or end up lonely when they carve out their own path. But the reality is that when you carve out your own path, like my friends were just talking to me about, you'll notice that a lot of people will want to follow you and you you know, want to follow your footsteps and end up doing the same thing. <laughs> which I think is funny that I was like, oh, people want to follow you. I didn't even mean that in the social media kind uh, I didn't even mean that in the social media connotation of follow at that moment. So if you're tired of social media, but still want to keep people updated with your content, why not try something like a mail newsletter instead? It works. I think it's awesome. And it's saving so much of my energy People can still stay just as updated as they used to be able to, and it doesn't take out a whole bunch of my energy, so it's amazing. Okay, so transitioning into today's episode, we have Ben Matson today, who is a philosopher, mental health researcher, and a friend who is very dear to me. So I'm really excited to finally get a conversation on this podcast Um yeah, we've both tried to get a conversation on this podcast since the very beginning. Um, you may have um, heard that I had mentioned um, I had mentioned him in the first couple of episodes. So it's really nice that um, this is coming back full circle. Um, the reason why he couldn't be on for such a long time um, is because he had been quite busy with his organization, which is the Hope for Us Network, which I'm really excited about this launch. And it's really starting to launch now, so I would check it out now. The Hope for Us Network is an organization that seeks to fill in gaps that the mental health industry needs assistance filling by enacting preventative measures before the onset of mental health crises. So that, I think, is an excellent cause. It's a very systems-thinking-based cause um, that we don't think about every day. So I think that that is going to be 
a really excellent stake in the ground for what we need um, for global mental health. So Ben's interests include exploration, interpretation, and the sharing and translation of experience. His formal background includes philosophy and psychology with focuses on understanding experience and the art of languaging. So a lot of similarities um, to, uh, you know, a lot of similar interests um, that I am interested in as well. So this conversation was recorded three months ago, back in May. And it seems like forever ago that we recorded this. Um, It's really, really cool to look back like this. Like, wow, you know, uh, looking back at how much I have learned and grown since this conversation. Yeah, yeah, it's just really cool. So thinking with Ben is always such a pleasure. So I'm grateful to be sharing this with you today, and I think you'll really enjoy it. Um, Just be aware that we use a lot of philosophical languaging in this episode. So I put a brief glossary in the episode description for you below so that you can follow that just in case you need it. Um, All right. Well, without further ado, here's our conversation. Enjoy. Yeah. And it's this kind of like epistemic sort of, you know, injustice to use a term due to um, this one philosopher I really like. Um, See if I can remember Miranda Fricker. Um, But, you know, to, sort of riff off of that kind of like melody in general um, to undermine like somebody's uh, genuine phenomenological and then like also rational um, sense of what their boundaries are that 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 is that uh, (laughs) it's not always meant as an act of violence but it can violently ripple through how they are in the world and how they are in relationships like ever after Uh, that definitely happens with kids and Mm-hmm. Yeah, Maybe, yeah and, and like, and we continue to be highly sensitive individuals. We continue to be people that, you know, um, that this stuff really permeates within. Um, you know, it's interesting just to connect uh, one one dot on kind of like a more micro level. I was talking with a good friend of mine about um, the permeability of like cell walls, and so you know, just using that as sort of um, as, yeah, as a metaphor, that makes sense. As, as a metaphor that I think can be very realistic, like when we look at um, the notion of overexcitabilities in the brain or in the body, like when it comes to highly sensitive um, em- embodiments, like that stuff may have correlates. I think it does have correlates in the literal physiology, mm-hmm. i.e. Uh, cells, cell networks. And then yeah, as you iterate up into the person's lived experience um, and yeah, and I guess um, sometimes uh, the, the pattern is, and it's an understatement, it takes science and like our, our best methods a long time to catch up with um, where our lived experiences over the centuries or millennia have always been. Yeah. Like we, I, it's really hard I, for objectivity to, to uh, catch up to phenomenology. Yeah, yeah, or to undermine the notion that it has to, um, it has to validate that phenomenology. Like if we prioritize communication and believing people or, um, you know, communicating between uh, folks, you know, I, I don't want to like overstress this, but people who have been, um, you know, subjugated to uh, various forms of abuse over the centuries, um, yeah, you know, uh, yeah, um, like the onus is not on them. It's 
I think it, it's on it's on the it's on the subjugators, it's on the colonizers, it's on people who have consistently um, denigrated and dehumanized whatever group of folks that is. Right. Um, but yeah, no, I mean, I think like the focus on like purely objective, as it were, methodologies for validating. I think it's our, a part of colonization. I think it's part of yeah. what Tico. Yeah, because that erases the phenomenological experience and the validity of that experience. Yeah. And I mean, and that's what continues to perpetuate it. Yeah. If we only look at one side of the coin or if we only, Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, it might not even just be one side, right? Like if we only look Mm -hmm. at objectivity, we miss out on so much of what's happening. Like I was just Mm -hmm. speaking to uh, a music student the other day and I noticed that you know what we are actually doing is we are unpacking colonization in music and elitism in music and mm-hmm. it's been very fascinating it's what they've asked for I was helping her get with the rhythm and she is a white female and I noticed that she kind of had internalized some of the gatekeeping around rhythm and reading music and that the only way that you are to internalize rhythm, this is the lie, the only way you are to internalize rhythm is through reading the music. And if you don't understand exactly what the rhythm is, you know, or if you don't, you know, what I was trying Mm. to do is I was trying to help her do something more combinatorial where it was like, okay, what if we read the music, but then also compensate for what you don't know. This is how my mind works, you know, compensate for what Mm -hmm. you don't know rhythmically and feel the rest. And if you are Mm -hmm. able to do that, that will help you compensate until you are able to move forward and learn more about this. And so I had an exercise with her where I was like, well, why don't we just see if you can feel that, you know, like there's two beats here, there's two beats here, but they were like, you know, they were like across the measure. And so that's what can could have made it like a little confusing for a beginner. Um, and so I told mm-hmm. her, I was like, well, what if you just feel it, right? So I said that and I noticed that she it clicked. Like the next time I asked her to do it, it instantly clicked for her. And I asked her, I was like, what, what really clicked for you there? Like what, what thought process did you have there? And she said, well, I don't know. I feel like this sounds a little cheesy. She was like, but I just felt it. And I was like, no, that's not cheesy at all. I was like, <laughs> as a matter of fact, and I, and that's when I went down the road. I was like, just so that you know, I was like, that is very typical for African music. It is just passed down. Music is a tradition that is passed down from generation to generation. We don't have, Africans don't have written music. It's not necessary. It's not needed. We just feel it. And so, and so that was super eye-opening to her. To understand that, like, yes, both are valid. The European way of music and written music, that's just as valid, you know? And so I think that that's another thing because reverse gatekeeping can happen. I noticed that this is what happens among the African-American community is that there's a lot of gatekeeping around, oh, white folks don't have rhythm. And it's like, actually, what's happening is if you unpack both of this mutual gatekeeping, the issues that we have, mm-hmm. if you if you unpack the gatekeeping, what you'll see, and I actually told her all of this, I'm like, what what it means is that like we're just used to white people pressing onto us that you are not allowed to feel this you are only allowed to to see it in this one way and we're so used to being pressed into if you want to get into the best conservatories if you want to get into the best music um you know if you want to get into the best music competitions and all that stuff that is one of the very first things you have to be able to do is to read music and to sight read and 
we talked about that and it was just kind of like, it, it is a very strong sense of el- elitism and gatekeeping. Mm-hmm. Um, but none of that gatekeeping is okay, whether it's, you know, regardless of what community it's coming from. Yeah. And I mean, I, I love how you put that. Um, and I, I love the emphasis on sort of like a combination of, of methods or, or ways of getting to uh, that, that which both people um, or which the group really, really values. Like maybe it's making music, maybe it's um, understanding each other's phenomenologies because like, and to, to go back to what we were initially talking about, um, you know, when it comes to uh, like with, with Tico or like yeah. very, very deep seated, like shadow stuff, like hopping on to, um, like higher level or more stuff. Yeah. Yeah. That, that's, that stuff can, can be transmuted by things like, um, like philosophy of music where you need to, uh, prioritize sight reading or kind of like more of a linear or intellectual process. Um, it can transform it from something that is legitimate by itself, but then the role that it plays is to stymie people's individual, um, expression and the way that like, you know, well, this, this came out of a particular, um, heritage and that heritage is just as valid as the heritage that, that birthed, um, you know, Western music or right. Western philosophy or whatever it is. You know, just, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And like, yeah, like culture is a thing, but I think that a lot of times, like, whatever word we use. Yeah. 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 For mm-hmm. sure. Um, and I think that a lot of times though, when we see it as culture, there is, I don't know. There are a lot of archetypes. There are unnecessary archetypes that kind of come into play and there are a lot of power dynamics. I think that a lot of times what I tend to use, you know, like I'm not trying to be like overly semantic or whatever, but you know, it's just something I noticed that people tend to like students tend to respond to when I say tradition, these are just different traditions, you know, like Mm -hmm. there's one tradition here. There's one tradition here. Both of them, you know, are I mean I think you know if you define what a tradition is it's a so you know it's just a set of rigidities that belong mm-hmm. to you. so it's also important to know that they are rigidities by themselves mm-hmm. um so that's also another reason why you know like if we're talking about building musical creativity building any kind of creativity it's important to know that all of these all of these aspects are essentially traditions it doesn't necessarily mean that yes, they're all valid, but that doesn't necessarily mean you even have to use any of them either. Yeah. I guess they're not all functional in all contexts. Um, they don't always like respect what the person is trying to do and in their musical context, their philosophical context, their ex context, their sexual context. Um, it's, it's, it's like a big, a big sandbox. And, um, if we if we if we construct something out of sand like right there, then it's not always going to, um, it's not always going to play the role, uh, in invariantly across individual situations because there are just too many situations. I think like if if you take a tradition and then you take like a behavioral manifestation or intellectual manifestation of that tradition, like always sight reading or always, um, or always prioritizing like one particular scientific method. Um, then basically like that morphs and transmutates any given context after that in which you're trying to see it. And, um, but like that particular context needs to be on equal footing with whatever the output of that tradition was. Otherwise you you falsify the experiences of the people in that context. 
Right. Um, and it's not to say like, you know, uh, they're always right. It just means like, well, we, it, it really helps to have an accurate picture as to what's going on. Exactly. Yes, um, exactly. Yeah. I think that that's a huge um, part of it. It's like, it's important mm-hmm. to understand the structure that your content is lying within. Oh yeah. Right. Yeah, oh. exactly. I love that. Or understand whichever way we put it, um, yeah. understand the B that your A is lying within or the A that your B is lying within. Right. Um, exactly. Yeah. It's really and, important to see because it doesn't mm-hmm. necessarily have to be congruent. Congruence is not necessarily what you're always looking for. Oh, it's I think a that a lot of people assume that congruence has to happen between those two, between A and B. But mm-hmm. what I do think is what you were talking about regarding the permutations out of mm-hmm. A and B. Yeah. I, I, I mean, I, I think we, we, we lose track of uh, our individuality and what's really genuine um, and thinking in the context of, um, you know, sexuality and maybe like uh, gender identity too. We, we obviously we lose track of um, that, which we, we can become in that, which we were because we prioritize another kind of structure. Um, and yeah, it's, it's kind of like, let's just see this as a system or an ecosystem that's evolving over time. And to use the notion of like static congruence or, mm-hmm. um, you know, when I, like, I think when we say congruence, like there's like this heavy metaphor, like from, um, analytic geometry where like, okay, like things are like static. Um, it's like this abstract realm and you don't have complexity, you don't have lived experience. And most importantly, maybe you don't have tempor- temporality, like you don't have, uh. um, time or evolution built into the system. Right. And so like you, you immediately like falsify whatever we're trying to understand. One one identity falsifies uh, whatever the object of the individual's understanding is. Maybe it's music, maybe it's gender, maybe it's philosophy, maybe it's science. Yeah. Maybe sexuality. Yeah. It doesn't matter what it is. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Maybe it's transforming the world, like and getting out of capitalism too. Like, Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And it's really important to understand how things fractalize out of what's happening, what mm-hmm. kind of combinations oh, yeah. I love these that. different things create, um, mm-hmm. you know, the perpetuations that happen out of. Mm-hmm. It's hard to figure out whether or not a person just doesn't see it or doesn't hold themselves to a sense of responsibility for it. It could be it could be a number of things. Mm-hmm. They they were conditioned uh, to to believe very viscerally, like in, in in their soma that if they do see it, they do act on it, they will be punished, and it's bad. Um, uh, <laughs> yeah. Or it's just not accepted because of institutionalization, which. Yeah. <laughs> which is so so it's. A, a whole other manifestation of this, of the constraints on individual expression and valid phenomenology. Precisely, man, this really reminds me a lot of, in general, anything that has to do with relational fluidity. Mm-hmm. Oh, I love that. Yeah. Yeah, because it's not, it's not a, it's not a static congruence. Um, and I think that what happens, like integrating your, um, like the temporal variable, some of these other variables that you're talking about, the way I convert that into an analogy is mm. taking something taking something out of the ecosystem and trying to study it 
Oh doesn't yeah, doesn't make any sense. Like, <laughs> it, it, it falsifies what it was because it exactly. was part, part of its being That's was its relation think. to other elements in the ecosystem, other nutrients. Exactly. Um, yeah, no, for sure. Yeah. So um, whenever you, so I think that that's what happens whenever we make these judgments. Um, cause I'm like, you know, that's, that's kind of what I see relational fluidity as is it's all of these different fractalizations out of the conditions, um, of the world, the conditions of, um, whatever is transpiring. It's just different people's responses to, whatever is happening, not saying anything, any judgment of good or bad of what's happening, just anything that's happening in their lives. Mm -hmm. They're just responding and, and creating balance within the ecosystem that they live in. Mm -hmm. And for that to be, for that to be invalidated doesn't really make any sense. Yeah, it, it doesn't. And, um, it creates like this not in their lives. And then that knot perpetuates itself. Oh, uh, yes, somatically, like, very much so. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And that can be passed down genetically. Mm -hmm. Stress is passed down. Um, or like in more of a, a real-time way, um, they take that stress out on other people. They take that the manifestations of that knot out on other people. Um, the Yeah, and I, I love that you mentioned fractalization or like the propagation of... Um, right like an information shape over time, like just perpetuating itself. It's, it's a really, it's, it's such a, uh, what's the word? Um, it, it's so incredibly suggestive and accurate. And to me, like both metaphorical, but completely accurate and like objectively yeah, true exactly. at the same time. Yeah. Um, interesting. Yeah. That's mm -hmm. very cool. Yeah, it does feel objectively true in the ecological sense. Oh, yeah. I would definitely say, yeah. Yeah, I... Even though it's not necessarily visible, right? Because if there is... <clears throat> if, if data isn't being gathered in such a way that validates these experiences and validates mm -hmm. these phenomenologies, then... We don't, I mean, self-validation or self-legitimization is all we have. And luckily you can do that from the ecological perspective. And that's why I really do appreciate systems ecology. Oh yeah. And to be able to share the notion and concepts within systems ecology and systems ecology or relational fluidity as an overall way of being, to be able to share that and have that fractalize out among people sort of like as a method of healing um, or as, you know, not, not even as like something that counters um, Watiko or counters um, right. colonization dynamics and concepts, mm -hmm. but it will, it just like, it automatically feels better. People, right, right. They remember this is how we always already were. Uh, <laughs> and it's not like, and then it becomes, the only game in town for lack of a better phrase. I like um, your laughter because like, I mean the mm -hmm. laughter that's like, you know, from this what is, I'm sensing is kind good. of like, uh, -huh, this is, this is real. Like hopefully mm -hmm. people don't get mad. You know, that's, I don't know. That's just kind of, that's like how I'm, how I'm perceiving it. But like, you know, that might not be true. So well, that I, I would say that. Yeah, definitely. And then also like, it just feels good to acknowledge it in the moment. Yeah. Like I get like, um, like I'm not, you know, uh, 
the only substance I'm on right now is coffee, but I got a little bit of a body high or what I, what I equate to a body high when like I start, <laughs> like when, when I dance with you in this, uh, in this conceptual ecosystem. Yes. I love. Mm, yes. That's wonderful. It's like to talk about it can be to be it too. Exactly. You know, one of my favorite things, and I still haven't found the word for it yet. Maybe you can put words to it, but if I can paint the picture of like two people where there's just so much that like, there's very, very um, like there's balance going on in real time. There's a push pull kind of like an electromagnetism. There's like a push pull happening in real time. So what you'll see on one hand, like I'll use really simple numbers, but I really see these at like, you know, tens of hundreds to the thousands of the decimal places and even further. Yeah. But, yeah. you know, like, you know, on one hand, you know, you see like uh, six and then the other person is four, you know, and mm -hmm. then at, you know, but in real time that is changing. So at the decimal place that's changing where, mm -hmm. you know, um, that those percentages or whatever are switching over. So it's not always five, five, you know, sometimes, you know, there's six and then there's four, and then maybe another time, like somebody else is seven and then the other person is three and being able to, mm -hmm being able to hold that space in real time, I oh, yeah. think is being able to hold the phenomenology of others. Yes. And to mutually hold the phenomenology of what's happening. I, so if we can like mm -hmm. translate that into something that's kind of like ecological mathematical, I don't know if there's any term for that. Yeah. I mean, there, there, there should, there should be a term for it. Or like if we look at it in terms of like shapes that then could be described by uh, ratios, moving yes. ratios mm -hmm. um, or um, yeah, uh, like, I mean, I think of two bodies oscillating together, like maybe they're having sex or you think about. Um, yeah, it's that energy exchange. Like, yeah. The energy exchange. Yeah. And um, Brilliant. Uh, it's always switching up and there's that um, one concept that does come to mind is just uh um, positive interference, like when you have, um, you know, like, uh, two, two waves hit each other, like in the beach, or, um, I guess it wouldn't be in the beach or in a lake, two, yeah. two things that can then create a, a greater, a greater wave or a greater uh, ripple. They, they, they yeah. add up or there's, you know, there's, there's some yeah. X which says how they, how they add up. I wish that in school, they let us come up with questions that came out of things that we already visualize instead of them oh, just speaking yeah. stuff to us. It would be so much easier. They, they try to enable us and ipso facto disable us because they haven't appreciated how our minds work um, right. or how our minds might work. And they just, right. they, don't even, they don't even think to ask that or they, you know, maybe, right. maybe they don't even look like into in, the realm yeah. about of what is impossible mm -hmm. to predict. And that's also another thing. Ooh. Mm hmm. That realm, for some yeah. reason, people are not attuned to that. Yeah, to, we can maybe like hold space and like you know build the space together, like um, uh, such that like yes, uh, what's going to happen is impossible to predict, but we have, as it were, like the foundations, or we are able to be genuine. We are comfortable with each other and uh, right. our bodies. Um, mm -hmm. So like it's like whatever comes next, like we've already got what's 
what's essentially us so that we can make sure that it's not something from outside of us that we're conditioned to then um, to then approach whatever that unknown quantity or variable. For me, what that means is that 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 makes me more creative because what oh, that yeah. means is that if there are things that are impossible to predict, then what that means is that you're not losing out by doing things very differently. You're not do you're not because you don't really know how things will propagate out of what's mm-hmm. going on. And that's the first step, I think, if you're looking at it, you know, somewhat linearly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, yeah. I think that I, in my relationships, a lot of times I deconstruct first. Oh yeah. Typically to <laughs> you know, and like it's really funny. I just got a really amazing synchronicity. Like, <laughs> like when I said deconstruct, I was just like, you know, I'm not gonna share it, but there was an amazing mm-hmm. synchronicity that happened. I was like, oh well shit, you know, like that happened in my outside experience. It was like, but what I typically do is I, you know, whenever I start, and I think it's really cool, it's important mm-hmm. for listeners to understand this. Like the way I approach my relationships, mm-hmm. and I uh, you know, it was just kind of like Abandon all presuppositions about what, you know, whatever relationship is supposed to look like, mm-hmm. sound like, be like from any sense, even yes. from the vision of the cellular memory. Mm-hmm. You know, I think it's really important because I think that that's what happens is that we get so used to the attachment styles that we had growing up. And but what happens is if we don't deconstruct our attachment style and how that itself attaches to a lot of what's happening societally. Mm-hmm. that that can be an issue how we just all of a sudden because we have insecure attachment styles may think oh well it's not a you know for an example it's not okay to seem too eager it's mm-hmm. not okay to seem over eager whenever you are first getting to know somebody i'm like no i deconstruct mm-hmm. that completely and i tell people i'm like no mm-hmm. i am a person who like if i am spending time with you if i'm spending a lot of time with you what that means is that i will be intense. Like I am going to like, yeah, not in a toxic way, but I will, you can expect me to be eager to see you. Hell yeah. And if that's a problem with you, then you can leave now. Mm -hmm. And so I put it all out on the table first. I'm like, no, I'm deconstructing all of these narcissistic things because they are, I mean, I think a lot of these, a lot of these dating dynamics are inherently grounded in Wetiko and we just we just like do it we literally just do what we're told and it's kind of like that doesn't make sense to me yeah we and one way that that Wetiko can manifest is reducing each other to like I mean in a disembodied way interestingly enough like geometrical objects oscillating through space yeah you know and it's great to to like you know have sex and like hook up and stuff like at at that level um but um I think like yeah, to, 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 to be aware that um, in some situations, some of the time to some degree, like that might be uh, society, um, you know, manifesting, um, maybe, maybe not, uh, but like to be, to be aware of like where, where one is coming from in that dynamic. And like, like you said, not to, um, to kind of like strip away the presuppositions so that we can see each other truly. And like, I, I you know, in dating, like, or in um, uh, queer, queer platonic platonic relationships, wherever it is in the space, like I don't want I don't want to falsify the other person's perception of who I am. Um, a because like there's a certain kind of like injustice to that, and like mm-hmm. like time apparently like it's going to continue moving forward, and 
um, you know, like, uh, I, I don't, I don't want to like how we're, per- how we're perceiving that. Believe me, I understand. <laughs> we can go all the way into philosophy of time, but I get it. <laughs> oh yeah, 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 for sure. yeah. For sure. And then um, it, it's it's like every now and then, like you people like you and I meet, and um, like we were both on that wavelength um, right. where like we can show each other who we are, and then that uh, that positive or constructive. Um, wave yeah, without presuppositions just seeing you know yeah. as mm-hmm. you're communicating your phenomenology of who mm-hmm. you are absolutely and really mm-hmm. really being able to hold space for that yeah yeah instead of just being like oh well this person must be abc you know it's just it's really interesting and this also mm-hmm. goes into our psychology field you know i think that that's oh, yeah. you know I think this is what happens a lot. And I see this happen mm-hmm. a lot with, you know, uh, I'll say, I'll say the societal construct of dating um, mm-hmm. because that's, I, I just see this happen so much where they're like, well, you know, when is a good time to have sex? And when is a good time to do this? I'm like, stop, 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 stop. When is the, the question to really be asking is when is a good time for us to do this? When is a good time for us, you know, depending, you know, on the perceptions of who we are and the perceptions of, you know, and like taking away all Mm -hmm. of those. But I understand, you know, I did a little research upon because I'm my mind doesn't literally my my mind literally doesn't work that way where I don't I don't ask like, when is a good time to do this? Like, but I realized that the reason why people are asking that, at least this is what psychologists are saying, is that people have a desire to fit in. And Mm -hmm. that is actually, you know, if you're looking at the Maslow's hierarchy of needs, because that is also severely colonized. Um, Oh, yeah. But, Mm -hmm. you know, but um, the the belonging needs, you know, that's valid. We all kind of have a need for belonging or whatever. And I think that it is actually separate from a need for love. And, you know, because I've I've noticed times in my life where I felt intensely loved, but I still didn't feel like I fucking belonged. You know what mm-hmm. I'm saying? So that does, you know, I do see a separation between the two, um, at least for my own life and my own phenomenology. So mm-hmm. what happens for me, like, I think is that I think I've been so used to as a nonlinear thinker, not belonging that I don't have as much of a need to belong uh, compared to others and their self-perceptions or their self-image. I think that I literally don't mm-hmm. have that need. And so that's why, like, What's really nice about that nonlinear thinking, that becomes a bit of a superpower because you can be like, well, you know, it's easy for me. It's easier for me to deconstruct what's going on. Yes. Um, You know, for me, if that's not right for me, you know, so if something Uh, like marriage mm -hmm. is not right for me, I don't automatically subscribe to something just because everyone else is doing it and because I want to fit in. And unfortunately, what I notice is in, in the aromantic community, you know, I noticed that a lot of the, and not just that community, like, you know, I'll say like in, in a lot of communities where people finally get a chance, like in the LGBTQIA communities Mm -hmm. where people have had to deconstruct because they're, you know, Mm -hmm. because they realized that their phenomenology is severely different from what is seen as relational objectivity. Mm -hmm. What happens is a lot of their stories if you, you know, a lot of the data, if you can gather all that data, a lot of them say that, well, for the longest time, I was just following what society said and not realizing that I didn't even want this. 
Yeah, and I loved what you you used a phrase like it if it it should be for me, or to generalize, it should be for the uh, like the, the microsystem. Maybe it's a dyad if people are dating, yeah. or maybe it's a throuple kind of dynamic. Uh, it should be for them. Like society, in a way, is for the micro. It's for that subset of society. Like, or um, at another level, um, asking a question like, "Well, is now the right time to have sex? Is now the right time to kiss this person?" That question, I think, and uh, like the phenomenology which motivates that question, it it comes it comes secondary, like um, to to the needs. Of, of individuals like it's an option it's it's a way of expressing the individuality yeah. of whoever's in question um and and you know to connect it back to what you were saying um and one one way that my mind went when you mentioned maslow's hierarchy of needs like as a conceptual system and um you know like it's it's still talking about hierarchy which which in a way can can immediately like we've been saying falsify um non non-linear needs that individuals Precisely. and dyads have yep. it doesn't it's and so like it, yeah. The, the, yeah yeah definitely the, the role of using a concept like that um is and the value of it is precisely dependent upon how it plays out in the the relationally fluid uh, ecosystem yes. in, in, in which we, we want to thrive, in which we need to thrive. Mm-hmm. It doesn't go the Precisely. other way around. It's for us. We're, we're not for society. Yes. <laughs> like, because there's we're no not for society. Society is for us. Yes, exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes, Can... precisely. Yes. You know, because I mean, yeah, sure. There are definitely some societal benefits, you know, like mm-hmm. um, that are fantastic for people. And if it works for you, then that's great. But I think it's, I think that a lot of people miss the point Oh, yeah. know? And I think that that's really what you, I love that you were lifting that up in the way that you were and in the abstract way that you were. It's like, yeah, um, a, a particular uh, way that like we, we relate with people um, has value and will propagate positively and create positive, um, positive interference, you know, waveform interference. Like it will do that um, if it's interacting with us as, as genuine beings. Um, yes. otherwise like it's interacting with us as falsified, uh, you know, um, objectified beings or, uh, colonized beings for, for, for example. Yeah. Oh my gosh. This really reminds me, if you don't mind, I'm going to actually pull up my, uh, X of sex. Um, oh, that would be fantastic. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because this reminds me so much of the way I decided to turn Maslow's hierarchy on its head Oh yeah. With regards to X of sex and I'll find it because it was just, it really reminds me of this conversation. Here it is. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So what I, what I really put here or what I I put, I put more importance on, um, you know, and once again, it's not a hierarchy, right? Like for, for me, whenever I was playing with these ideas, Mm -hmm. I put more importance on self-actualization as a foundation. Oh, yeah. Because mm-hmm. if you put down self-actualization as, if you're grounded within self-actualization, if you're grounded within your own somatic knowing, mm-hmm. then, and a lot of, I think if we, we wouldn't have so much to deconstruct if as children we focused on self-actualizing. Mm-hmm. And we wouldn't 
And if, if we take self-actualization first, it sounds like um, I think we're on the same wavelength here. Uh, then we can understand the other levels or however we under, however we parse other things that we might need. Um, we can understand, um, yes, this need is coming from me versus my parents That's and nice their parents way. versus uh, yes. other lateral systems in society. Yes, this is right mm-hmm. going right back to the structure of A mm-hmm. um, being um, you know, walking in circumspect to what's happening with B or just being aware of what's happening with A and B. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, you know, we can't be aware of something without being aware of what's around it because that's part of that something's being. Right. Um, yeah, I completely agree. And if we're also, not aware but... of our inner ecosystem, then how will we be able to interdepend upon mm-hmm. everything else and really tie together with um, our outer ecosystem. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the issue is that we are not, mm-hmm. we are basically set up to not know what's going on in our, you know, quote unquote, e- inner ecosystem, right? We're not, mm-hmm. we're not, uh, we're socialized. We're either socialized out of that or it, I think, I think in general, we just don't pay attention to it because mm-hmm. of societal demands and because of, f- feedback you know, we kind of get distracted too. by all mm-hmm. the other stuff that's going on, you know? And then I think that, you know, sometimes the construct of the nuclear family makes that harder too, because oh, I yeah. think that I honestly think that like a more um, like the way that it used to happen in the past with the communal families and stuff where everybody raised everyone's children. Mm-hmm. I think that that teaches interdependence much more. I wonder, I really do wonder. Cause I mean, I don't know. I, I, I wasn't there, you know? <laughs> so I'm like, I, I don't know if that, mm-hmm. that would help us tune into our inner ecosystem more. To at least have the option to do that. Yeah, to have which, the option. To, and which it definitely takes pressure off of like, okay, like in a, in a traditional, like Anglo-American family, whatever you got, like you got two parents, um, that's, and then if you, if you distribute like the responsibilities between other people, um, presumably like those two initial individuals or whoever they are have more energy to self-actualize and know what they need mm. then they can pass it on to their kids right? or to their nephews, niece, nieces, exes, whatever. Um, right. However, I, think much less of a, I think there's much less of a hierarchical power dynamic when those things happen. And I think that, like, I think that's the structure that it's, it's coming out of with the nuclear family sometimes. Yeah. Uh, oh yeah. It's, yeah. It's just such a, yeah, it's such a stark power dynamic. Be like, more lateral, lateral and oscillating, more fluid than hierarchical. Yeah. Yeah, precisely. Yeah. And so I brought that over to sexuality and I was like, well, what if we focus on sex as self-actualization first? And what I call that is sex as development or sex mm-hmm. as creativity instead of what we're normally seeing is getting sex through or getting sex because of our just inherently physiological needs. Yeah. And I think that that's Mm -hmm. what happens is that we only see sex as physiological need. And yes, that is a part of it, but there are other parts to that as well. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's what happens is we get so, um, we get so fixated on the fact that sex is a physiological need and we don't see anything past that. Yep. It's, it can be, and it is for more people, I feel like moving forward, um, more people maybe now than like, you know, I don't, 
I haven't I, I haven't seen like data on this, and I like there is data on this, but like the, the the freedom to CX is more than like um, a method for reproducing genes, right. or as a method for um, definitely as a method for uh, for proving like social prowess. Um, to be able yes, to see precisely. it is yeah, that's the part. Yeah, for the love and belonging or whatever. Yeah, the esteem. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And I think that's what happens with a lot of cis men. That's what they struggle with when they're trying to decolonize their sexual psyche and sexual mind. Um, that That's mm. something that I have noticed. If you're looking at like philosophy of mind with regards to the cis male sexual psyche, I think this is often what happens. Is you, mm. the, you know, the ones that I have worked with, what you said, like, well, I tend to see sex as, you know, like an esteem thing that you know and i'm just like there's so much more to that than <laughs> it's so much more than esteem yeah. and unfortunately that's what society teaches cis males yeah and we see that reflected in models as to the biological function of sex and and various other things and people start a lot of the time cis white males start counting like well how many people did you you know do such and such with or right like we start ranking and, yeah, exactly. Um, I, when the worst part um, to me is completely invalidating the experience of perhaps a non-cis male yeah. or or basically any, like even a cis male, it doesn't matter, like invalidating the experience of a male who perhaps does not want to see sex as esteem. Yeah. We, li we limit the, the lived worlds of, of other yeah. people, um, definitely. And... Uh, the notion of X and sex, X of sex, um, and how latent that is with with possible lived realities and transforming the world. Um, I think like, and we've, we've, we've talked about this before, and it's within X of sex in a way, but the sex of X, um, kind of like see it as a mirror image. Um, Precisely. Which, you know, in, interestingly reminds me of... Um, yeah, I see the sexuality of so many different things. You know, it's like we're saying, oh, yeah. like, as in the mathematics of relationships, you know, yeah. like a lot of people don't like these, you know. Yeah, I see the sexuality of so many things. And I honestly, that's what I call sexual processing. That's, you know, that's the words that I finally decided to use in my essay. Like, you know, a lot mm. of people have tried to shame me for that, but I have a natural, that it, I mean, if we're looking at my phenomenology, mm. that's what I would call it. It is the sex of X. I have natural sexual processing of mm -hmm. many things. And it's much easier for me to see it that way. And people think that that's somehow a problem. And I'm like, no. <laughs> yeah. I mean, and I guess like it's so weird a lot of the time because they don't even understand it because they've chosen to look at the words and they have an association or a complex of associations. Yes, precise. And then they don't. Um, and they think mm. like depravity or debauchery or whatever. And it's like, wow, interesting. You know, I'm like, I don't understand where you get this from. Like for me, like yeah. for me, it's more of a, it's more of a, uh, like I hate to use this word, but I think you'll get what I'm, I think you'll get what I'm getting at. Because like, sometimes when you use the word mm. logic, that can be rigid for people. But for me, it feels like more of a logical processing. Yeah, it's an illogical form of logical processing. Um, it's 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 falsifying what logic can Precisely. be. Like, lo I mean, logic plays a certain role in life. Formal logic plays a certain role, um, I guess. And it's and yet it's incredibly illogical to try to think that and act on the fact that like we, we believe we understand somebody when 
we haven't even given them the, the chance to, right. to, to, to be themselves. Yes. And that's, those are the worst relationships I've ever been in. And, you know, once again, like even the fact that I, I have to say, like re- when I use the word relationships, the fact that I even have to put an asterisk by it ought to tell you like that's, you know, oh, there's so yeah. much de- there's so much deconstructing of language that needs to happen. Because when you say relationships, people automatically think, oh, romantic. And it's like, no, no, no. When I say relationships, I literally mean the full scope and spectrum mm-hmm. of any kind of relational dynamic. Yeah. Yeah. Same. And I, I, you know, and to, to an extent, like I have one foot in, in that realm where I reduce the notion of relationship, like intuitively to romantic relationship. And then I have, like, I'm sliding that foot out and I'm putting it alongside the other foot, which does see it more relational where I give space to the person that I'm my interlocutor, my, the person that I'm engaged in interbeing with, um, to actually, you know, un- unfold what what they themselves mean, which is which is the the most relevant um, process to engage in. Whoever like we're engaged in with the world, and maybe it's like in real time in an intimate situation of some sort. And side note, like we can do the same thing with intimacy. We can decolonize that just like we do with relationships. Intimacy doesn't doesn't mean like you're next to the person. You could be on the phone with them. Right, exactly. uh, it means vulnerability and a multitude of other kinds of variables. Um, but like whoever we're relating to, whoever we're engaged in, like this kind of genuine synthesis with, um, to be able to relate to them as they are or as they are in the moment, um, that's the most relevant, powerful uh, kind of process um, to, to engage in. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Awesome. Because it lays the, it lays the groundwork for uh, for them to unfold in the ways that they want. It validates their experiences. You've mirrored the validity of them expressing who they are, like invariantly, invariant with regard to like the content of that expression. You've said, um, "I believe in right. the fact that you're expressing yourself." Yes, I love that you said completely irrelevant to the content of which they're expressing. That's really important. And I think that that's so important for the psychology field or the psychotherapy. Oh my goodness. That will, that, if that was propagated in the psychology field, whoo, that'd be amazing. It's like radical phenomenology, like in a way. Mm, Um, I like that. That term is nice. And at the same time, like it's what phenomenology always wanted to be as a method for for voicing experience as experience, not as societally limited or straightjacketed experience, but rather experience on its own terms, lived experience as lived experience. Yeah. Yeah. That that's valid. Precisely. Wow. Yeah. It's like the fact that you use straightjacketed there is just like, Oh my gosh. I had this this image of like straightjackets, like fractalizing out. And like, oh there's like mental straight jackets, phenomenological straight, literal straight jackets. Are. Oh yeah, somatic yeah. straight jackets, cellular straight jackets. Absolutely. Yeah. No, this is what they are. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Oh my goodness. Yeah, that reminds me of a dream that I had. It was this feeling of it literally felt like a black hole, but luckily there was mm-hmm. like you know I didn't pass event horizon or anything. You know what I'm saying? Like I was mm-hmm. able to get out of the gravitational pull or whatever. Like. 
Mm-hmm. But I felt from far away, I was actually in, I was in a museum that was supposed to be like a, you know, that was supposed to be, uh, this is to me, I think this is so outrageous, mm-hmm. but it was literally supposed to be like a museum insane asylum where there were people, they basically like put these people on display. Like it was just like, it was somehow cool to do that. You know, mm-hmm. I was like, what the hell? Like, I, I don't even think that registered in my dream until I woke up and I was like, that's messed up. But like, it was just like me and some unidentified friend, like we were like waiting in line for this museum. And mm-hmm. I all of a sudden, when they opened the doors, all I saw was just darkness. It was pitch black. Mm-hmm. And all, and like, it really was, it was like a black hole, you know? And I was like, and oh, yeah. I all of a sudden heard the worst, I can't even replicate it. I heard the worst, I the worst um, like audio representation of collective strain that I could, that you could ever, I mean, that I could ever experience anyway. Right. I can't say that for anybody Mm -hmm. else, but like to this day, like I have not heard that kind of audio representation of collective strain. Mm -hmm. And I was like, Oh my God, this is the energy of what is happening. And I was just like, it was just, I was just, you know, a lot of times my, my dreams kind of like throw Mm -hmm. me into feeling like if they force, it's like forced empathy essentially. (laughs) And I'm just like, oh my God, now I really know how this feels. Holy shit. Like, you know, and I can't say that I know exactly how it Mm -hmm. feels. Right. But from my phenomenology, it was, there was something that was being communicated from the aural standpoint. And I noticed that aural empathy is really one way that I can process well. Um, And so I think that's, that's what was being communicated. And I remember running from my dear life. Mm -hmm. I ran, I ran, and I remember just running. I was like, oh my God, I'm not getting caught up in that shit. Yeah. And so it's really interesting that like whenever mm. it, that really was brought to mind, whenever you said the, you know, just, it was just a complete phenomenological, somatic, cellular mm-hmm. straight jacketing. That's, it's terrifying. And I think it's also really helpful for um for for me for me for like visualizing this so and also and um to give people the option of then doing that or like knowing that like yes there are other people who have this extremely vivid kind of representation of what's going on in terms of collective trauma and and re re, re-traumatizing dynamics so like the black hole to me can be a representation of an institution, oh, maybe yeah, it's an asylum, maybe general. it's a university. There's a spectrum of these kinds of things. It's an entire space that we can choose to build ourselves, build together. And like one one way just to play with it in a visual kind of like waveform metaphor, or like if, if we imagine like a lake and it, there are waves and they can only go up a centimeter and there's like this invisible wall on top of them. They always want to grow. They always want to unfurl and be themselves, but they can never get past that visual, that that visible wall. And that's the analog of that collective Mm. aural trauma or that collective, that collective iterated fractalized screaming or, Mm. or forgetting. Sometimes we can't get to the level of screaming. Yeah. Yeah. Strange. 
But it was almost like a constant, like almost like a triangle wave or or like a square wave, like an audio square wave or triangle. Like it really was. It was like a constant. And that's what was even scarier. Is it was it did not sound natural. It was a yeah. representation yeah, yeah. of it wasn't actually like it wasn't, uh, you know, like if you've got collective screams, you can hear that. But like it wasn't. It was almost like it was oh, really yeah. just like this underlying collective representation of what it was, of X. Yeah. Yeah. I think unfortunately, like there's the very real example of how Freud and other psychoanalysts and psychodynamic psychotherapists have conceived of the unconscious as something that there is phenomenology in there. It has a different organization. And an image I have often had, or it's kind of like, um, mm-hmm. I don't hear it, but I, I see I see the audio in a way, um, is of the struggle, the struggle in my unconscious. Yeah, like it can, it can be sort of like um, a, a lower resolution of the audio or the, wow. the, the vocalized strain. Like, right, once again, these things can be so combinatorial or mm-hmm. right. It'd be like distant, distant music, distant strain. We could become face to face with it, and that can be re-traumatizing in itself, but can also be this a a step towards healing, um, potentially. Like if it's safe to do so, and sustainably safe to do so. Um, I feel like that that definitely it's so real and it's so dark in a way, and it's also the application of our genuine lived experience um, within this realm of strain and collective strain. So it's absolutely. Yeah. And I think it's important for us to hear. Yeah. It's very important for us to perceive, right. If we're not Mm -hmm. looking at just senses, you know, it's, it's very important for us to be able to honor our perceptions, regardless of how they manifest. Mm -hmm. And I think that if we're bringing it back to objectivity and phenomenology, if we're looking at radical phenomenology, that is a huge portion of that, that when we can, when we can honor our perceptions, oh yeah, that, I mean, that is going to be helpful for us to turn around and heal ourselves and heal the rest of the world mm-hmm. and also just be able to exist just to be able to exist simply by being right. You know, like to be able to exist without having Mm. to deconstruct what's going on. You know, I think that normalization is a huge part of what's happening too, or what needs to happen. Mm. And, you know, it's kind of like I was talking, you remember I I said that I was talking um, about sex work with a sex worker the other Mm -hmm. day on, um, yeah, like, and that's, what fractalized out of that conversation for me um, that I haven't shared with them yet, um, what really propagated out of that conversation for me is to realize, I was like, okay, why is it, you know, and this might be an opinion that needs to continue to take shape um, because I, it may not be a fully informed opinion, right? Because I'm on the outside looking in. However, I think it's still okay to form your perceptions. Um, and I don't think that's a problem. What I noticed is that a lot of people from the outside looking in um, with regards to the concept of sex work, people typically go, oh, well, that's, you know, that's really empowering, more power to you that you're able to do something like that. And that's cool. You know, typically that's what people say. I notice that the word power comes up a lot. And I'm just kind of like, I don't understand why the word power comes up. But I started to kind of look into it and I was like, is it somehow perceived as empowering because 
um, that the person who is doing sex work is, you know, is actually taking power or taking autonomy, personal autonomy over their own sexuality. You know, that was my question. And that led me to the Mm -hmm. question of redefining sex work with regards to the patriarchy, because I'm like, okay, but what about like, why are we not also holding society accountable in the disempowering of the sexuality to begin with? Yeah. That, that, that is such a huge mm-hmm. part of the equation. Yep. And it's kind of like, I don't necessarily. And so in that way, if we're looking at the balance of positive and negative and neutral, to me, sex work is not empowering. And, you know, once again, this is from my own phenomenology. To me, sex work is not empowering in that one angle because I'm like, no, actually what's happening is that you need to realize that society is systemically disempowering to the sexuality of everyone to begin with. Yeah. And so what's actually happening is neutral. It's not empowering. It's neutral. It's mm-hmm. normalized. It's normal. To me, that's normal to be able to take, you know, to be able to take personal autonomy over the sexuality. It's not empowering. It's normal. Yep. Beautifully. And I think that that can fractalize among um, neurodiverse realities that, you know, or any of these other realities that are seen as marginalized or systemically marginalized. I'm like, none of this is empowering. It's actually just normal. Yeah. It's recognition or growing uh, collective iterated recognition. like and to not even like normalize that that need for recognition and seeing each other in genuine ways right. but just um because normalization like is really i mean it always will remind me maybe of commodification and the reduction of and the reduction of folks to you know oh. the kind the kinds of values extrinsic values that have been propagated through um capitalist mindsets yes i agree with that completely and so i think like maybe even redefining what normalization really is getting at for me Uh, i'm looking at it from a neutrality and from a balance of where we already were before pressure of societal ecosystems yep and for me like i see that perspective kind of like um you know sort of like on on this lake that i keep talking about like it's distant and it's coming towards me and to be be able to recognize like potential growth or potential um self-actualization like on on the horizon um yeah it was excellent talking to you today this is really really great and Thank you. Thank you so much for the opportunity and um, dancing with you in this, in this space, this co-created space is lovely as always. Thank you so much, Carrie. Yes. All the time, anytime. Always. Right there with All you. right. Mm-hmm. Yes. All right. Peace. See you soon. Right. Bye-bye. Bye, Carrie. Mm-hmm. All right, y'all. Thanks so much for listening. I can't believe that we've been doing this podcast for eight months already. It seems like I had just started. And so there may be a dip in episodes with co-hosts specifically as I'm rounding up my next wave of guests as we speak. And I literally just reached out 
to uh, who may be our next guest. So I'm very excited. This person who may be our next guest is a BIPOC physician and sex educator who is basically a go-to person in the sex positive and polyamorous communities. If you want to know information on how medicine can colonize our bodies and sexualities. So I'm really looking forward to having her on. And of course, if you think you have a lot to contribute to this podcast, then I would absolutely love for you to contact me at simplybybeing slash contact or simplybybeing.com slash contact because I am looking for many types of expertise. I'm looking for many types of, you know, there's a reason why, um, there's a reason why um, in my description I talk about that I want this podcast to take a very holistic perspective because I was just telling someone else who might be one of my guests um, very soon. I was essentially telling her that decolonizing sexuality, it's not just something that we can look at from the psychological perspective, right? It's not something that we can just look at from the political perspective. It's not something that we can just look at from um, you know, it's something that we do have to look at from an interdisciplinary and uh, it's something that we have to look at from an interdisciplinary and holistic perspective. There are a lot of times where we have kind of the opposite of holistic. We have these reductionistic perspectives, you know, like, oh, well, if we just implement X, then it'll all be fixed. That's called an oversimplification. And unfortunately, this is why I believe that we are not seeing the results that we really would like to see. So yeah, just be aware, uh, be aware of the fact that there might be um, a dip in episodes with co-hosts. So you might hear more solo stuff, but um, you know, doing the best I can to um, get those um, other guests as soon as possible um, with all the other stuff that I'm up to lately. Yeah. So all right, everyone take care and stay safe. And until next time.